Lord, we're grateful again to be in your house. We're thankful that uh, kind of in a metaphorical sense, we get to come into the, the holy place where we can talk and um, learn about some of these ideas and, um, and learn about the content of your scripture and the structure of your scripture before during your worship service we enter into that holy of holies where uh, we submit to being the preaching of your word. So bless our time that we have right here as we look further into the New Testament in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are covering both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, so the Corinthians as a totality today. And um, if, you know, if this, <laughs> while I was driving here this morning, I was thinking, boy, if I had to give the thing a title, I'd say, you know, like hot mess. It is just, Corinthians is just crazy, crazy stuff. Um, no question, of course, that it's authored by Paul. Paul writes this uh, letter, but each of the letters to the church in Corinth. And um, he probably authored this, the first letter, um, during his stay in Corinth during the, his second missionary journey. So he's establishing the church, and then he is writing in, uh, at, at some point during, there during his travels. So my Dennis, our Acts, chapter 18, verses 1 and 11, gives us a sense of where Paul is. And remember, uh, so I mentioned this last time when we covered, uh, when we covered Romans. So we have Acts as our backdrop, as the, like the logistical narrative of where Paul is and where he's going. Um, review question, where is he frequently launching out from? Antioch. Good. Did you guys hear it? No. Okay, I was hoping to hit somebody else too, see if I can get two people. So yes, Antioch. Remember, he frequently starts from Antioch and kind of makes his loop. And um, so we already know that, that, that those journeys are taking place and they're recorded in Acts. And so that's why we go back to Acts to see where Paul is on the map when we read these letters, like the letters to the Romans and letters to the church in Corinth. Okay, go. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Then verse 11 Then verse 11, says, yeah. And he stayed a, a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Okay, so he's a full 18 months in Corinth. Now, what I want to do, for, uh, by the way, I, uh, two apologies. One is that I printed, I had a nice map to go with, your, uh, with the notes, the handout that you have today. And I hit print and walked away and came back and managed somehow to not print the map side. So uh, you get <laughs> you get my drawing. And uh, praise God that he gives many good and wonderful gifts. One of the gifts that I did not receive is um, that of being an artiste when it comes to drawing. So, but I think this will make the point. Uh, the city of Corinth, this background of Corinth, this is uh, helpful. This is why we like to talk about these things in like Sunday school, so that when um, you end up hearing a message 
uh, again, being preached in the Bible, and you, you go to turn there, we, again, we're trying to Im imprint some backdrop for you. And I think realizing some of the, the logistics and things going on and um, before we even get to the church that's inside of Corinth really helps to paint the picture and to get a sense. So the city of Corinth is on an isthmus right here. All right, how fun is that to say? Even more fun to spell. Um, so it's on an isthmus, so it connects. This is a piece, a strip of land between uh, Greece and the Peloponnesian Peninsula. So we have, uh, which, which basically this is all considered Greece, um, but it has these, these separate, I, I listed these cities because there are some major um, kind of metropolitan type areas, heavily populated areas in each of these. In Greece, you have Athens, you have Thebes, you have Delphi, and then down in the Peloponnesian Peninsula, you have the city of Olympia, you have Sparta, you have Megalopolis. That has to be big, right? It's Megalopolis. Um, and then in addition to that, Corinth, because it's right here on this isthmus, it is actually accessed or it's uh, by a number of other ports and port cities. So I didn't bother writing the names, but there are you know, three here, and there were two in particular that um, are port cities that end up bringing in the people that are coming to the area that then eventually are going to go, all these people that are going to head to, to Athens and Greece or down to Olympia in the Peloponnesian Peninsula. So they're coming into these ports and there's lots and lots of different cultures and different people that are flowing into this area and then ending up in the city of Corinth itself. Um, Guy Prentice Waters wrote, quote, destroyed by the Romans in 146 BC, the city was rebuilt as a modern planned community in 44 BC under Julius Caesar. It served as the capital of the Roman pro province of Achaia and was therefore a center of government as well as commerce, close quote. So why do you suppose this is kind of helpful information for us to know this kind of historical, geographical background. Bill. The audience. Okay. Very diverse audience. Uh, there we go. It's a very diverse audience. Very good. Lots of, well, lots of different kinds of people. Yes. Yes. Jane says lots of different kind of people, lots of uh, influences from all other, all over the world. Um, here's another quote by uh, by Waters. Again, it was quote characterized by the wealth that trade brought and by the power that the Roman presence represented. So essentially, what you have are all socioeconomic classes. You have all uh, all kinds of varied ethnicities. You have different cultural and religious backgrounds that have settled there. Um, it, which means then, of course, that would trickle down into the church itself. So even, um, even though they have the common bond of Christ, you have all of this baggage, you know, which isn't bad. I'm just saying the people bring with them lots of different backgrounds. So even within our own cultures, I mean, you can take Nick and me. I mean, we both spent a career in this metropolitan area doing... Um, the same 
work, the same career. You know, people would look at us and maybe lump us together. You know, we're the, we're the same ethnicity. We are, you know, from the same era and everything. And even we have quite a bit of differences between us. Well, add to that now, even within our congregation here, the differences that Nick and I have from what Selva and uh, Getsy have, or Gary and Glenda, or the Aconquos, or you know, these different backdrops just within our church right here. And they would have had that on an exponential level because of the, um, all of this variety of people that come in. And um, this mixture of rich and poor creates, of course, unique opportunities for sin. When you get people with lots of different backgrounds together, it makes for a beautiful diversity, both of, you know, that glorifies God, and it can also create lots and lots of opportunities for things to go sideways, and we see that that's exactly what ends up happening inside the church. Um, it, is a, it is filled with both the cultured and the unrefined, um, who's got my Acts 18 verses? Yes, go ahead, Bill. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade the Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. Okay, so we see that Paul devotes himself exclusively to preaching to the Jews initially, and then they're hard-headed, they won't listen, and then he diverts his attention to the Gentiles. And of course, just by saying Gentiles, it just means non-Jew. And so now he's going to talk to all of these various cultures, all of these different folks, and immediately he finds um, some believers. Um, there are those that become believers because of the word, the gospel that he's preaching, specifically Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. Um, anytime as well, so I'm not saying it necessarily within the church, although that's, again, how it trickled down in, um, in Corinth. But when you get lots of people together, um, people import their sin. So they're, yes, they're coming in to these ports and all of these different uh, socioeconomic levels. Uh, they bring their sin in. In fact, uh, Lori and I, when we were traveling on, um, we had the opportunity to go to uh, where Mount Vesuvius is, I can't remember. Um, but uh, they have a port there and they were going around and showing us how there were lots of places that had, of course, developed to accommodate all of those that, uh, that were coming in in the port and all the different varieties of sin that they wanted to um, participate in. 
people are away from home, they're traveling, and so there was a market for it, and so it was created there. So you can imagine then, even when some of these people become Christians, when they hear Paul preach, you know, they didn't necessarily, they're Gentiles, so they didn't grow up in an austere, um, rigorous Jewish uh, education, and not, not that somehow that would save you, but it might at least turn you more close, a little, move you a little closer to the Pharisee way of living, of more restraint. These folks didn't do that. In fact, in the Roman culture, it kind of had a, 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 an encouraged, a rampant, sinful, and in particular, a sexual immorality. And so people bring their baggage even into the church then, even though they're saved, they carry all that stuff in and they're struggling with these issues. And now you get these folks all together and it uh, creates a bit of a, uh, a, bit of a storm. Um, so it ends up affecting their view of marriage. It affected their view of divorce. It affected um, you know, their view of even being single. It also influenced the way that the Corinthian church viewed the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, and Christian liberty. So these are all things that are going on uh, within the, the Corinthian church. Um, first Corinthians was not the first, even though it's called First Corinthians because it's the first of the two that we have, but First Corinthians is actually not the first letter that he wrote to them. In fact, uh, I don't think I wrote it up there, so, but 1 Corinthians 5, chapter 9, I think makes reference. Uh, yeah, so 1 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 9 says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, and it goes on from there. So in, the first, in what we're calling the first letter, he refers to a previous letter that he had written to them. So um, 1 Corinthians is not the, the first letter, and basically, the, the feel of the, the letter of the book is that he had previous contact with the Corinthian church. So it's like, as a reader, it's like you're getting dropped into the middle of a bunch of counseling cases. You know, it's like you're walking in on the conversation that's taking place. So uh, a, a, a biblical counselor is, is pleading with you know, a couple over their marital issues and you walk in to hear what he is saying to them and pointing to them out of scripture. And then you walk out of that room and go into the next room and you hear a pastor talking to a young man about sexual immorality and, and then you walk into another room. And it's like, you're just, you're being dropped into these cases and we're seeing all of these separate issues that are taking place within the church. And this had an impact actually on Paul. You know, this, this is difficult. Now, I don't know how many of you have been engaged in discipling people or in particular in counseling people. It is, it takes a toll. It is very difficult, you know, sometimes, or I shouldn't say sometimes, but uh, I would say that we all have a tendency to see what somebody else is doing and think, oh, well, you know, that's just their job. But the reality is, if you do it yourself, if you help hold, you know, hold somebody accountable with their struggles or walk through 
a couple in their, in their marriage difficulties, it is, can be a, a really heavy burden. And so we see Paul refer to that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Is that you, Tammy? Who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my, oops, sorry, okay, who should have made me rejoice, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Okay, so... It's, if you think about the language and the descriptors that uh, Paul is using there, he's saying he, in, in, the second, in Second Corinthians, he's talking about the first visit and how it was, he refers to it as a painful visit and that, you know, they should be a joy and instead, essentially, he's describing them as a burden and that it ended up causing him a lot of tears and a lot of difficulty. And so that's the weight that um, a biblical counselor can carry and that we see actually in Paul and his heart is for the people because he wants to honor the Lord. So don't get me wrong, I, I'm not saying that um, poor Paul, what I'm saying is that the sin takes a toll not only on the sinners but on other people that are involved in helping to, um, to solve the issue and to bring them uh, so that they are reconciled to God. Which, of course, then, as far as this background, as we think about how it affects the church, and you have all of these different and disparate groups of people that are coming together in the church and that also have all of these issues, that also means that it's fertile ground for false teachers. You know, they're going to see opportunities. There are divisions there. There are unique uh, types of sins, and so that was another issue then Paul was having to deal with is these false teachers that were making their way in and, and then, you know, trying to pick people off, trying to lead astray, even the elect, as Scripture says. And so what they did is then they would specifically attack Paul's credentials as an apostle. And so in addition to everything else, Paul is having to um, multiple times repeat his resume, why it is that he is, should be considered an apostle and why God had called him to be an apostles, an apostle. So one of the things that they did is that Paul uh, had told the church in Corinth that he was planning to come back, but then he was unable to come back for, you know, God had other plans for him. And so his accusers, these false teachers, then took the opportunity to say, to say see, you know, basically he's a liar. He didn't, he told you who's going to come back and he didn't come back. And um, and so now Paul is writing about the fact that, you know, why he didn't come back and having to defend himself. So um, we see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 15, Chidera. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? 
Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, and our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him is all, it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that, the, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you, for you stand firm in your faith. Okay, so when he's talking about this yes, yes, no, no, what he's saying is, do you, I'm not speaking out of both sides of my mouth. So this is part of his defense. He's like, I'm not over here saying, oh, yes, yes, but really at the same time I'm saying no, no. He's saying, look, this was the plan, but I'm following the Lord's plan, and the reality is the Lord has spared me by not having to come to you again. I mean, that's, you know, that's pretty straight talk, and that's what uh, Paul's getting at is he's both defending himself and simultaneously pointing them back to the Lord and saying everything is yes, exclusively yes, in the Lord. We do what it is that he uh, tells us to do and, and also in following the providence that he's, he's laid out for each one of us. Now, by the end of 2 Corinthians, it seems there is some indication that Paul's previous letter, so 1 Corinthians, was effective. There's some repentance that is taking place. Um, but, uh, that ended in reconciliation, but the book of, uh, in, in first and second Corinthians, particularly first Corinthians is, uh, frequently referred to, or I've heard it referred to many times as the book of church problems. And, uh, here's another quote from Waters that I thought was pretty good. Paul appears to be breathlessly moving from one brush fire to the next, hoping to extinguish the one before the other gets out of control, close quote. And, it, and so um, we end up seeing that in the design of uh, 1 Corinthians. He also says that all the issues seem to be born out of the same problem, which is the failure of Christians to relate properly to the world around them. So really, we're talking about living their life as a Christian. So, you know, be... Uh, Becoming a believer and being justified is only the beginning of the Christian life. There's a life to be lived. And um, one of the things that was really interesting to me in, in being able to prepare for this and look through it is um, I, I came across these terms of a, an over-realized eschatology versus an under-realized eschatology. And um, so the, the idea being that if you have an over-realized eschatology, that there is a sense in which, hey, Jesus came, he did everything that needs to be done, and basically we've leapt all the way to the end, like it's here, that it's over-realized. It's, it's, we can, in this sense, it's bearing itself out um, among the believers because you figure they're, they're preaching you know, Paul is probably preaching, here is what the Old Testament has said for centuries. Here is what this guy, Jesus, has accomplished that fulfills these centuries, millennia, really, of uh, redemptive history. 
and there is a sense then of, oh, well, then it's all done. It's finished. And the, the problem with thinking that way is that you then don't live as though it's in the future, which means you don't live with restraint. You don't live with discipline. You're not producing godly fruit. You are, um, you are taking too lightly your responsibility to uh, live a sanctified life. And then the opposite direction, the opposing way to uh, look at that is an under-realized eschatology in the sense that, again, there's no, uh, no real issue with the, not even, instead of seeing that it's all been taken care of and we can kind of live how we want, it's that this world itself really isn't that bad and you end up co compromising with evil. And instead of seeing this world as evil, is, is, uh, yeah, you compromise with it. So either way, both of them fail to take into account the need to live a life with godly restraint in one regard, and yet understanding that you are a victor over evil. So you, the pendulum can swing too far in either direction. With an over-realized eschatology, you can be so focused on being, on, on being victorious that you don't take sin seriously in your life. Or in an under-realized eschatology, you can take sin so lightly that, again, you don't show restraint in an effort to be sanctified. And either, in either direction, they bear themselves out in more sin and more difficulty. So we have, take your, um, your outline then, and I just want to point out kind of what he's doing here. I have a quote there on top. Again, by Waters, quote, in both Corinthian letters, then, Paul is not content simply to name problems and to propose solutions. He sets those problems in redemptive historical context. He wants the Corinthians to understand their sins and difficulties in terms of negotiating life as those who belong to the age to come, but also continue to live in this present age, an age to which they no longer belong since Christ has delivered them from it by the Spirit, close quote. So, what, he's, what Paul is doing is he's not just going through and saying, okay, here's problem A, here's, here's marital problems, how can we make your marriage better? That is not the end goal. That's a nice thing, and unfortunately, I think a lot of churches um, uh, teach or preach toward solving, you know, making a marriage better or developing better leaders um, living a better life, uh, and things like that. But all of those things must always be in the context of the gospel, which is to say that anything that we do um, in, uh, in dealing with our sin has to be with an eye towards pleasing God. And when we do that, we will make hard decisions that will stand, stand on the convictions of God's word so that we may have to make hard decisions that instead of just making life easier, or I keep using the, issue, the uh, example of marriage, but instead of just saying, <laughs> good morning, Mateo. Um, instead of just focusing on how can this marriage be, be, how can there be less conflict in the marriage, there may have to be decisions that in order to honor the Lord, I'm actually gonna have to make a decision that's gonna introduce more conflict into this marriage, but I'm doing it to honor the Lord. 
And that's what gospel-oriented or applying the gospel to different individual sins does. It always points the sinner back to God, not to just solving a problem, not to just making it better. And so what happens then in Corinthians is Paul kind of systematically works through all of these issues that are going on in the church. So if you see, there's of course in the first section, there's a salutation and thanksgiving. And then in the last section, what shows Roman numeral seven, there's concluding matters. But the rest of it, it has broken into five sections, five sets of problems. So you have that first set of problems, which are divisions and factions within the church. And by the way, the, so I, I should, <laughs> uh, and by the way, I should mention uh, that this outline partially comes from the, uh, the book we've been using, the Michael Kruger book, and then also um, I got it from the, uh, some of the sub points there from other sources as well. But um, so the first set of problems is divisions and factions, and then the second set of problems has to do with sexual integrity, and then he has all of these individual issues. There's a case of incest within the church. Um, there are Christians that are suing each other. There's other forms of sexual immorality taking place within the church. Uh, there's marriage and divorce questions. And, you know, it's interesting, I was um, talking to someone before Sunday school started this morning, and he was saying, you know, when you read 1 Corinthians, you can find yourself thinking, man, what's wrong with those people, right? You know, can you believe that they would do that? And, uh, but we also know that all of this comes home to roost, and this is why I was kind of laboring all of this stuff about the metropolitan area, because that's exactly, th these are the lives, this is, this is where we live today. You know, in, in an agrarian society, I think it's less likely to have some of these issues, but we live in Corinth. I mean, we live where all of these people come together and all of these issues come together, and um, we're still sorting them out in the church. Uh, the third set of problems had to do with food offered to idols. The fourth had to do with public worship in the church, and then it you know, individually, he talks, he writes about head coverings, and even the head coverings, uh, you know, it's, un <laughs> pardon the pun, it's under the uh, topic of head coverings, but really it has to do with authority issues within the church and the, and the proper order of worship in that regard. Um, issues of the Lord's Supper, remember there were people, again, these different types of people, these different groups of people, there were people coming together to participate in the Lord's Supper, and do you remember the issue that was happening that he had to write about? What was the problem? That's right. <laughs> I should bring Jamie up here to do our, uh, um, yeah, anyway, yes, gorging. Them. So we have a group that's absolutely being gluttonous right in front of, overeating and drinking excessively right in front of people that have nothing. And uh, he's, he's saying, this isn't right. This is, this is not how things are to be done. This doesn't honor the Lord. This is not how we participate in the Lord's Supper appropriately. Then he addresses prophecy and tongues, and then the, the overarching principle of order within the church. And then the fifth problem is the bodily resurrection. There was lots of question about whether or not there was there a, an actual physical resurrection 
was uh, a reality, and um, Paul takes that on in depth. So all of these individual things, he just kind of has to, has to keep hitting. And then in 2 Corinthians, um, he ends up, uh, you can see the, the breakdown there about offerings and, and the, uh, uh, oh yeah, I was going to comment on that third one there, Paul's defense of his apostolic ministry response to the super apostles. Uh, the super, he's being, this is again one of the things I love about scripture. Turn in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11 is that Paul is being a bit uh, snarky here. And so it's nice to know that God communicates in this way as well through Paul. So in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 4 to 6, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these, you know, scare quote, air quotes here, super apostles, even if I am unskilled in speaking. I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. So it would seem, right here anyway, that what he's doing is saying, look, okay, so there are people that came in that speak better than I speak, you know, but they don't know more than I know because I have God's word in my heart and, and what I do know, even if I don't speak as well as they do, even if my delivery isn't as polished as theirs, what you need to know has been made plain to you. And then to clarify that, uh, uh, and so we don't know if they themselves were, uh, these guys were calling themselves super apostles or if it became a, 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 a turn of phrase or if Paul himself is throwing that shot out. But I, I do think that he's jabbing at them because then we see down in verses 11 to 15, that same chapter, it says, um, all right or 12 to 15, chapter 11, verses 12 to 15. And what am I doing? I will continue to do in order to undermine the claims of those who would, claim, who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will cor uh, correspond to their deeds. So we see that Paul is basically um, both defending himself and then bringing it back around to the fact that it's the gospel, the reality of the gospel that matters and that God is going to judge those that consider themselves to be above and to be better um, than what it is that he's preaching to them. Uh, I wanted to um, point out one last section here. Go to, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and I wanted to look at verses 1 through 5 because it kind of encapsulates what Paul is doing. Now, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. So, 
Paul is about proclaiming the gospel. That's the number one thing that he's doing. And, it, and we see in verse 2 that it is the gospel that saves the hearer. See? Um, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. And then he adds the caveat, unless you believed in vain. So it has to have been, based on verse 1, it has to have been received. And then in verse 2, if you hold fast to that word that he preached to them, and then you get, go on to verses um, 3 and 4, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared uh, to Cephas then to the twelve. So he's again reiterating that the gospel message was given to him by God, but it's not his personally. It has been given to the church, and it is intended to be spread and to be shared with all of these really messed up people. Comments? Questions? Everyone eager to jump in and read Corinthians now? And... Okay. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for um, this, this overview, and thank you that you are a God that deals with all of these issues. Um, while it would be wonderful if we could just remain um, above the fray, we know, Lord, that that's not how our life is characterized. We're knee-deep in the fray. Lord, sadly, we are contributors to that sinful fray uh, far too often. So forgive us of that. Help us to see what's going on in the Corinthian church and not to judge, but instead to see what it is that can be applied to our lives so that we might produce godly spiritual fruit. Bless the service, bless the preaching of the word we pray that we're about to hear in Christ's name, amen.